Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. I'm very glad to have you with us as we start another week of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I put up a sign uh, in my home office where I've been doing the show now for a while, uh, a few weeks ago, and and it says, uh, pandemic remotes, and then it gives the number of weeks we've been doing them. We just got to, this is week 24, almost half a year that we've been doing Political Rewind by remote and uh, all of our panelists are joining us as they have been for those 23 weeks uh, uh, by telephone. Um, we're going to take on a subject today that I hope we can drill down on, uh, bring some perspective to. It's a conversation that I think it's really important to have, particularly at this moment in time. We're going to talk about the concept of defunding the police. It's an idea that's been around for quite a while, but as I think everybody knows, in the aftermath of the shooting deaths of uh, George Floyd, of Rayshard Brooks, of Breonna Taylor, uh, and others at the hands of police, in some cases police who are now going to stand trial for murder, it really came to the forefront as um, a, a subject that people want to address in a much more specific uh, t- time frame uh, today. Um, And so we're going to have that conversation because I know there are people out there who, when they hear that concept, find it frightening, a little uh, strange to the ear. But let's drill down on it and see where we end up as we talk about this subject uh, today. Uh, Joining us, of course, it's uh, Monday. Jim Galloway is my partner on the Monday and Friday shows. He's the uh, lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and you read him as he uh, edits the uh, the Jolt and uh, a lot of the other political uh, uh, subjects you see on the AJC.com website every day. Hey, Jim, welcome to the show today. Good morning. Last Monday in August. Who'd have thunk? That's amazing. I know. It's really amazing. Uh, we're also joined today by Tiffany Williams-Roberts. Um, she is the Community Engagement Council for the Southern Center for Human Rights, Uh, But also, and particularly important for this conversation, Tiffany, you have been on the mayor of Atlanta's Use of Force Advisory Council, and you were uh, the uh, chair of the the subcommittee that looked at law enforcement response. Have I got that right? I was actually the 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 co-chair for the entire council, but I led the non-law. Oh, okay. Thank you for uh, uh, correcting me on that. Thanks for joining us for the show. Uh, Professor Fred Smith is back with us. Fred Smith is an associate professor at the Emory University School of Law. His expertise is on uh, constitutional law, the federal judiciary. Uh, He was also, Fred, the 2019 Law School's Outstanding Professor of the Year. We always like to mention that when you're on. But probably most important today for this conversation is the fact that you are on the board of Invest Atlanta, which is uh, the organization that deals with economic and community development. You are the authority for the city of Atlanta. Hi, Fred. Welcome. Hello. It's my pleasure to be here. 
Um, we're also joined today by, you know, it's interesting when I introduce our next panelist today, that these conversations about defunding, rethinking what police do, uh, uh, all of the various issues around this subject um, are, are being dealt with, but our, our next panelist is a person who has to look at something like this from a very specific point of view. Rusty Paul, frequent panelist on this show, mayor of Sandy Springs, and Rusty, uh, I'm really thrilled that you uh, are on the show today because I think your perspective on all this as a mayor overseeing a police force, overseeing a community that worries about uh, safety, but at the same time, you've been talking a lot about racial justice in your community. So thank you for joining us today, Russ. Bill, it's always uh, it's a real honor and, and privilege to be on your show, and particularly on a subject like today. I want to point out that at the end of last year, in November of 2019, a report was released based on FBI statistics which showed that Sandy Springs was in the top 20 of American, some 246 American cities in terms of safety. You have had uh, one of the safest cities in the United States, uh, right? That's correct. And uh, we work every day to keep it that way. Police force of about 127 officers, I believe. Actually, we're higher than that now. We're up to about 100, almost 150 sworn officers. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. So, Jim Galloway, let's start this conversation. I, I don't think we can avoid the uh, elephant in the room here. Our conversation about defunding police comes after an intense weekend in Portland where there were more confrontations uh, between uh, uh, protesters, most of whom were peaceful, uh, Black Lives Matters protesters, racial social justice protesters confronting uh, uh, what appeared to be uh, white right white extremist organizations that came in. We had one man shot over the weekend, perhaps uh, uh, targeted because he was there mar- on the counter uh, protest side, on the white extremist side. We of course had two people uh, shot last week on the other side of this thing. Portland right now is the center of national attention. And, and I don't think we can avoid at least talking for a minute about it as we begin a conversation about defunding police, Jim. No, and, and what it does is it has it is, it is thrust uh, police forces into this, uh, into this uh, space that they haven't been in for a long time. Uh, uh, and and we've had uh, and we're still debating it. I mean, in, in terms of public practice, uh, you had in in both Kenosha and in in Portland, you had the injection of of right wing protesters into into a, into a into a, a kind of a Black Lives Matters environment, and in in each case, you're 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 not see you're not seeing uh, uh, police as arbiters. As, as as neutral arbiters in this thing. I mean, the the one thing, the, the the startling thing about Kenosha was the fact that they 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 allowed the the young shooter, uh, seventeen years old, uh, with with a long gun out in the open, uh, to pass through their ranks after 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 the event. I, I we don't know enough about the Saturday event in Portland to say where police were and 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 uh, did they make any moves to separate the two groups. 
Yeah, uh, thank you. That's right. I want to. I should clarify that too. The the two people who were uh, shot last week uh, were shot in Kenosha as opposed to the uh, Portland uh, uh, shooting over the weekend. Uh, Tiffany, just a quick question about that. Does this kind of uh, these incidents do they make your conversation about defunding the police harder at this moment? How how does it play into that conversation? Well, I think. The incident um, involving Kyle Wittenhouse in Kenosha in particular really helps us to make the point, um, the point that police officers are often politically aligned with people who would do harm to communities of color. That for some reason, the same target that Kyle Wittenhouse and his mother had, the police perceive those protests as targets as well. And I'm not making that suggestion about police across the board, but certainly if it can happen at all, maybe this will help others to hear and honor the words or the, the sentiments of black communities all over this country who feel that they're under attack and don't, in fact, feel safer when they see an oversaturation of police in their communities. What you're, t- I think, referring to is the fact that reports suggest that Kyle Rittenhouse, the shooter in the Kenosha incident, was uh, kind of roaming the streets the other night uh, with a long gun. Uh, he passed by police officers uh, who saw him did nothing to stop him. He's underage, although we have to acknowledge that police may not have been able to recognize that he was underage and therefore uh, violating the curfew. But he was walking around with this long gun and uh, seemed to be operating at will. I think that's what you're uh, suggesting about that, right? Yes, and then there's also audio of police telling some of these uh, far-right protesters, we're going to push them in your direction, referring to BLM protesters. And so they are encouraging a clash between these two groups of people and aligning themselves with the right as opposed to the ones who are advocating for racial justice. Yeah, uh, there at least one audio I think we, we know about in which police officers thank the uh, the folks like a Kyle Rittenhouse who came out with their long guns uh, to they thought they say basically protect the community against the Black Lives Matter protesters. Fred, um, the concept when you first hear defund the police, first of all, we should say that isn't the same as abolish the police. There there are distinctions to be made here, uh, but when you first hear it, it it really kind of is jarring. But I think it's important, Fred, to point out that there are cities across the United States right now who are making significant strides to at least reduce funding and redirect funding from uh, police departments. Something like 117 uh, cities across the country, including uh, in Minneapolis, we know the city council in the aftermath of the George Floyd uh, shooting uh, said they wanted they want to abolish their uh, police department. But uh, beyond that, the uh, um, Los Angeles city officials cut $150 million from their police budget to reallocate the funds to services and programs for underserved communities. New York City is looking at a billion-dollar cut in the NYPD budget. The Boston uh, uh, City uh, Council is looking at a redistribution of some $12 million from police budgets. and There, there are, are, are many others uh, beyond that. So it may sound very strange to some people at first, but this movement is gaining steam, 
So with that in mind, what exactly do most people mean when they talk about defunding the police, recognizing we're generalizing because different people have different versions of it? Sure. Uh, I think that last point is absolutely right. Right. There's uh, there's a spectrum in terms of even I mean, you noted abolition. There's even a spectrum within what abolition means. And certainly there's a spectrum in terms of what uh, defund means. But um, but as you noted, defund uh, is about uh, reducing and redirecting resources uh, to and kind of thinking about public safety in terms that um, are not solely about police. Um, You know, sometimes uh, I think it's sort of easy to reach for the police solution because it's what we're so accustomed to seeing. Um, and also in the context of political campaigns, um, it's sort of an easy way in some respects uh, to show that you care about public safety, uh, to say, um, we're going to increase the police force to X number. Uh, and certainly here in Atlanta, uh, in, in the last mayoral campaign, um, all 13 candidates or so uh, in the uh, public safety debate on WSB um, all pledge to increase the number of police. Um, and so defund kind of encourages a, a, a reimagining and a redirecting of resources to other uh, uh, services that might also increase public safety. Um, so, for example, mental health services or, uh, or other various social services, or even uh, imagining some sort of community um, uh, peacekeeping force that um, that doesn't really kind of center on arms uh, and using state violence uh, in order to um, command public safety. Um, those are the kinds of solutions um, that, uh, that that people typically mean by defund. Um, and as you know, I mean it is uh, it's jarring. Which uh, on the one hand, right? Uh, you know, I know that there are folks out there who are like, "Oh, what a political gift." to uh, to Republicans and to the right uh, to have this language uh, out there in this particular way uh, because it is so jarring and because people kind of immediately imagine that defund means abolish. Um, on the other hand, right, uh, it also calls a lot of attention to the issue. Um, and um, it is going to generally be the case that activists are going to be far ahead of where um, political dialogue is at any given moment. And um, that's what makes them activists is that they activate uh, our imaginations to help us think about things that we weren't thinking about before and kind of uh, movements are called movements because they move us, right? Um, and so, uh, and that's what defund the police um, uh, means, at least as I see it. Um, Mayor Paul, Rusty, um, when Karen Bass, California Congresswoman Karen Bass, a, a, a liberal Democrat, uh, started talking about, started hearing about defund the police. She famously uh, gave a quote that said, uh, that's the worst name for a movement that I've ever heard. Um, beyond the beyond that notion that defund the police strikes people uh, rhetorically as hard to comprehend, uh, there is something to the notion of looking at how the resources of a city like yours are directed. How much time police spend doing uh, uh, activities that it's possible could be done by other agencies, even as they have an obligation to protect the community. Does that make sense? In one sense, it does, Bill, but it's also, I mean, everybody faces limited resources. And the challenge is not so much who responds but what's the training of the individual that had, that is responding? I, I, I was 
shopping last week in, in one of our shopping malls, strip malls, and uh, I parked and was walking, saw two of our police officers dealing with an, an, an elderly individual who was obviously distraught, upset, may have had some mental health issues, and so I just decided to watch. Uh, and two of our officers, they they kept their distance. They didn't get into his space, and they they used their de-escalation training to talk him down, get him calm. And then they, once everything was fine, they left. The biggest there, there's two challenges that those of us in 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 public policy uh, roles face when it comes to police. One is getting people to to apply for the jobs. Uh, recruiting police officers today is, is tough. I had a nephew who was a police, an Atlanta police officer who, re, who, at the age of 35, retired a couple of weeks ago because he just couldn't take it. We've had police officers' wives tell their husbands, don't bring your police car home at night. The biggest pressure that our police officers get is from their family saying, get out of that business. Uh, and you lose the good people, uh, and you've got to replace them. And some, sometimes in, in many departments, you end up taking people who may not necessarily be fit for the job because they're the only ones who will take it. You know, so that's one challenge. Secondly is training. Uh, we spend an awful lot of time on training. I watched that training in action in, in, the, in the instance that I talked about last, uh, just a few minutes ago where they were able to de-escalate a situation and um, – and, and everybody was walked away fine. The, the challenge is not so much who's there. It's what, what knowledge do they bring to the situation. A police officer, a firefighter can do a good job if they're trained in, to deal with these situations. That's why we call them the first responders. So it's, it, it, too, too often we neglect the training and the reinforcement of culture and all those sorts of things that are crucial in a successful organization. And so we focus a lot on training our officers to do exactly what I was able to witness last week. Hey, let me ask you something, Rusty. Uh, uh, I don't know what I'm not familiar too familiar with what uh, Sandy Springs's governmental uh, uh, structure is. But but are, are are you a strong mayor? Do you have does the chief of police report to you? And and if not, then then how does how did the city decide what the, the what the police force was going to be? And where what its parameters were going to be, because I think that's if if I mean from from, from what Professor Smith is saying, you know, and and and, and from what Tiffany is saying, uh, Ms. Roberts, uh, there's a there's a choice here that we that we make, even though we may not be aware of it. Uh, Jim, you've known me for a long time. You know that I'm a strong mayor. Uh, but I know the term that you, I know I know the term you're using, which is constitutionally. I am kind of a hybrid. We have a city manager. City manager is responsible for the day-to-day -day operations, and uh, I, I would be kind of a toward the weaker side as far as policy uh, or as far as operational uh, roles go. We one of the reasons we started the city of Sandy Springs was uh, before the incorporation. You'd make a call to nine one one. It could take twenty five thirty minutes for the police officers to get there because there were only eight officers in Fulton County covering the whole North End. So public safety was a major factor in the formation of our community, and so it, it received a lot of attention uh, when we when we started the city and continues to be the number one priority. Uh, but the, the the challenge is. 
how you incorporate that, what kind of culture do you do you have? And it starts at the top. It starts with your police chief and, and, and the top leadership and a focus on making sure that these individuals are trained properly to deal with the crisis situations in which they're forced to encounter. And we spend an awful lot of money on that, a lot of time on that, a lot of emphasis on how you de-escalate. And as a result, now, let me say, Tiffany said something. This can happen in any community. It can happen at any time. And so we I'm not arrogant enough to say it hasn't happened here, but in 11 years we've never had uh, an excessive use of force uh, charge that stands up. Now, we could get one today, uh, but uh, that doesn't mean we're perfect. But because we spend time on training, we are trying to, uh, to get a, a better culture within our organization. All right. Let, I, let me. So, Tiffany, I, I want to give you a chance to jump in here, and you too, Fred. I, I was fascinated by the fact that when I started researching this whole notion of defunding the police, <laughs> I found, of all publications, Good Housekeeping had published an article on the uh, on the uh, defunding of police and why it really might have more merit than some people want to give it credit for. And Tiffany, I just want to read a little bit of it and then have you respond to it. Uh, this again, Good Housekeeping magazine. Despite increased measures to reform the police over recent years, police violence and brutality have still persisted. According to the Washington Post, police have fatally shot approximately 1,000 people a year since 2015, with the rate that police kill black people being more than twice the rate for white people. And then they quote Patrice Cullors, uh, the leader of the Black Lives, uh, co-founder of the lead of Black Lives Matter, who says, we have spent the last seven years asking for training, asking for body cameras. The body cameras have done nothing more than show us what's happening over and over again. The training has done nothing but show us that law enforcement and the culture of law enforcement is incapable of changing. So in some ways, Rusty Paul and Sandy Springs may very well be an exception, uh, given that they seem to have a pretty good record on this sort of thing. Tiffany and then Fred, please jump in. Sure. Yeah. So what, what Patrice is saying, I believe, is absolutely right. What we know is that the culture of policing has been addressed for as long as we've had this iteration of American policing. Ida B. Wells talks about it. She says the ones that commit the murders write the reports. Dr. King talked about it. He referred to, it, to, the, uh, to referred to police brutality in many of his speeches. This has been a persistent constant, right? And so I think that what we're saying is that we have to think differently about what it means to protect our communities. And Black people have to be a part of the communities we want to protect. Um, violent crime constitutes such a small percentage of crime in this country. More people were jailed for marijuana possession, marijuana distribution, than all violent crime combined in this country. But when we talk about crime prevention and we talk about policing, we almost suggest that, you know, at any moment you can go outside and be the victim of a very serious rape or murder or aggravated assault. And while that is true, that is not um, addressing those sorts of crimes is not the primary function of police. And we've seen in Atlanta, their Institute released a report that since 1982, 
expenditures on police in the city of Atlanta has increased by 84.4%. That does not correlate with an increase in crime. And we've seen an increase in policing that also uh, fails to correlate with an increase in crime. And we see drug enforcement taking up the bulk share of law enforcement funding. Um, and we see our jails being populated by people who would be better served being re reintegrated into communities. And so there are studies that say that during the first four or five years of the Black Lives Matter movement, police shootings actually went up. And, we, and I'll give you um, an instance of, body, of where body cameras have, fail, have failed us. There was a young activist with whom I organized named Oscar Kane in the city of Atlanta. Oscar um, has been recorded in Ferguson on behalf, uh, talking on behalf of um, Michael Brown. Oscar advocated at city council with myself, Marilyn Wynn, anyone that you can name who's been doing this for a long time. Uh, around body cameras. Oscar Kane was killed by an Atlanta Police Department officer, I think now a year ago, a little over a year ago, who was not wearing his body camera. And when we came to city council and we said, listen, you've already done this audit and these officers are not using their body cameras. And when they don't use them, they are not being disciplined pursuant to what we recommended. What are you going to do about it? What Hugh Shields did is she came to council and she said, you know what? We need more expensive body cameras. We need body cameras that turn on as soon as we exit the vehicle. There was no accountability for the absolute failure for the Atlanta Police Department to properly discipline officers for failure to use their body cameras. And there was no, there was no, um, there was no accountability for Chief Shields for, for failing to uh, sort of encourage an environment of accountability among her officers. And so I think that Oscar, I always lift him up as an example of the failures of just relying on traditional reforms and us needing to think a little bit more critically about where funds can be better allocated and acknowledging the limitations of things like body cameras and training. Because the officer who, who killed Rashad Brooks had received more training than most officers had, and he had, in fact, just finished his use of force training. So, you know, that's, that's my opinion about that. Fred? Yes. Yeah, so um, the word accountability is such an important one and one that I think and write a lot about. Um, but the word that's, that keeps coming to my mind during the course of this conversation is prevention, uh, because I'm hearing kind of um, pr prevention is coming to my mind in two ways. Number one, prevention of violent crime. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do we do it? Uh, and then the other is uh, prevention of uh, this kind of uh, excessive force from state violence? How do we prevent that? Um, and, uh, and so I kind of want to take those one at a time. On the first, uh, in terms of preventing violent crime, um, you know, it's so Sandy Springs, I'm hearing, has about 150 officers. Uh, my understanding uh, is that Sandy Springs, I think, has about 180,000 people. Is that about right? That's uh, about 110. 110,000. Yeah. Right. Um, and so Atlanta is about five times the size uh, of Sandy Springs, but the police force isn't five times. The police force is roughly 2,000 police officers in the city of Atlanta. So that's a, that's a great bit more. And yet Sandy Springs um, is one of the safest places in uh, the country, right? And so kind of um, equating the number of police with public safety, um, we need a lot more to, kind of in the conversation about how do we, how do we do this? Um, you know, but it, and it's not, I mean, Atlanta has a particularly diverse police force and nationally we live at a time where police are the most diverse and the most well-trained that they've been basically in the history of the country. David Skolansky has documented that. 
um, and yet here we are, right? So, um, and so kind of thinking back in terms of prevention, what is it that we can do? How do we um, invest resources into communities, into mental health services, into education um, in such a way um, that we can prevent crime in other ways, um, I think is an important thing to think about. On the other question of kind of how do we prevent this sort of state violence, um, you know, there's it's such a complicated question. And, you know, surely it is important to make sure that police are well-trained, but also there's so many ways in which we're uh, asking so much of our public safety officials. We're asking so much of police officers. We're asking them to uh, to be involved in things like, uh, you know, marijuana possession and so forth. We're kind of putting them into so many situations. Um, and uh, you know, under Fourth Amendment doctrine from the Supreme Court, it's so easy for police to have interactions with individuals, right? So, we have, so um, the more instances that you have of these sorts of interactions, um, especially in uh, a society that has so many guns as the United States, um, where officers are going to be uh, afraid, we're putting them into all of these situations, and uh, and we're putting them into these situations in a country where there are more arms than there are people. Uh, and so um, it's not at all surprising um, that the net result of that um, is unauthorized uh, and excessive police force. Um, and so, um, you know, I want to think about how do we get to the root? How do we get to the root with respect to public safety? How do we get to the root with respect to state violence um, uh, as opposed to only thinking about the accountability question? Yeah, uh, let, let me uh, pose a question to, to to all three of our panelists here, and that is and that is uh, uh, a couple of questions. First of all, uh, the first one is 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 number one. Clearly, we've got a, a a cultural disconnect between the nation's individual police forces and the public at large, especially in 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 urban areas. And uh, how do we does diversity make a difference? And 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 and, and Rusty in particular, what's uh, I'd, I'd like to hear what the racial makeup of the the Sandy Springs police force is vis-a-vis its its uh, its its population. And and and, and Ms. Roberts, Are, if you know the same figure for for Atlanta, that would be great. Uh-oh. All right, let's do this, Galloway. You've set us up. <laughs> no, you've set us up for the next segment of the show. We do need to get to a break because uh, uh, we, we're, at, we're at a point where we got to get at least one break in. So let's do it now. We'll come back and we'll address Jim Galloway's questions on today's Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. We're joined today by Mayor Rusty Paul of Sandy Springs, Tiffany Williams-Roberts, who's the Community Engagement Council for the Southern Center for Human Rights, but also co-chair of a uh, committee that was put together by Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms to look at policing and uh, how to change the equation of what police do and what other agencies in a city could be doing. Uh, Fred Smith, who is a professor of law at Emory uh, School of Law and also is on the board of Invest Atlanta, which looks at investing in communities, how to invest in communities across the city of Atlanta. Jim Galloway, you'd asked a question a minute ago about how diversity plays a role in this whole notion of defunding police, how police interact with the community. Um, 
Uh, Tiffany, well, let me start with you, and then I know we want to get uh, Rusty Paul in and how he deals with it in, in Sandy Springs. How, what do you see in terms of just that? The, is the more diverse a community is, the more likelihood that there's going to be some kind of friction and difficult interactions with police in the community? I think, um, well, no. The, the short answer is no. Uh, the, the report I was able to pull up really quickly says that um, APD is around 58% black, 37% white, 4% Hispanic. Uh, as a public defender, what I witnessed was that the race of the officer rarely mattered. Um, my, my clients, uh, particularly on the west side of Atlanta and downtown, many places that look very different now 10 years later, um, they were heavily policed by black officers. And often my clients were brutalized most often by black officers. There's a book by James Foreman Jr. called Locking Up Our Own, and it talks about the dynamic of the African-American community actually advocating many of the things that have driven mass incarceration. And so sometimes it feels like an easy answer to say, well, if but we had more black officers, they would understand what systemic oppression feels like. And once they understand that, they're more likely to treat people with dignity and respect. But what we have to address is the culture, the pervasive culture in many police departments. Culture transformation was one of the factors um, that we focused on heavily in the Youth of Force Advisory Council. How do we transform the way that we look at communities, when we, I was on the um, committee uh, where we were, did a community process to hire a police chief. And one of the questions that we asked each candidate and for city of, for candidates for the city of Atlanta police chief position was, do you believe that you are at war with the people that you serve? And we wanted to hear the answer because I think it's really important to know um, that if we designate folks in communities as essentially enemy combatants, uh, then it is impossible to treat them humanely, regardless of whether you are black or white. And so I think we have to interrogate the culture um, and interrogate the politics undergirding policing more so than we do the race of the individual actors in police departments. But but if I could interrupt, what, what answers did you get to that question? Some said yes and some said no. Some said I send my officers into a war zone every single day. And some said, you know, I don't like to use that terminology because we're supposed to be in partnership with communities. And, of course, as an organizer, I was looking for the uh, for the candidates that said they were partners with community as opposed to being at war with them. But there were there was more than one candidate who absolutely believed that he was at war with the community he was serving. Well, to to go to Jim's question, uh, we spend a lot of effort trying to recruit minority officers uh, with varying degrees of success. We have Hispanic officers. We have uh, African-American officers. We have Asian officers. Probably not in the same proportion that, you know, that reflects our population. Let let me also say that, uh, you know, as Fred and and, and as I understand defund, uh, and I agree, the sentiment of the California Congresswoman, it's probably the worst term to describe what they really are trying to get, which what they want is something that we should be having a really serious debate about, is the quality of our, our mental health and, and other social services. Like every other city, we have homelessness, we have other issues, and I, there, there's a couple that I know by name. They're they're out there at the post office, and we actually sit and chat. You know, I ran homeless programs at the federal government for, for a while. Uh, and there is a serious gap 
uh, in, in these services. And that's really where we need to have the conversation about where we get the resources so that when our police officers encounter somebody who's homeless or somebody who's mentally uh, ill, that we, they, we have a place to take them. Right now, oftentimes, we don't. We end up taking them to jail because that's the only place to keep them relatively safe. So that debate is a legitimate debate, is one that we really need to have, uh, and, and we've tried to do that in Sandy Springs. I mean, we've got, uh, you, you alluded to it, Bill, the, the civic dinners that we wind up today, in fact, two, uh, two months of conversation in our community about social justice. We've had small group dinners, uh, they're virtual, and uh, we, we wind them up tonight. And then we're going to spend September looking at the data, and then we'll we're going to use that as a glide path and as a as a basis for figuring out what we do. I, you've heard me talk about growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, in the 1950s and 60s. You know, I thought when we elected Barack Obama, we had arrived. I've come to understand that that it's like Faulkner said: the past is never dead; it's never past, and we're never probably going to arrive on this issue. But we've it's a continuous work in progress, that every day we have to get up and try and do a better job. At least that's how I've become convinced and why we're having the conversations we're having in our community today. Um, real quick, when you say you're going to look at data, what data do you do you mine from these uh, race, conversations about race in the community that you've been having? It's, what does it's that mean? Sentiment. It's what do people think? How do they feel? Uh, what are, what's important? Uh, what do they want to see us do? These are the, you know, when I talk about that, I'm not talking about numbers. I'm talking about information that we gather from the conversations gotcha. so that we can figure out where our community is. It's kind of like having, I think we've had 30 or 40 of these. It's like having 30 or 40 focus groups that help us determine kind of where we are today, and then we can build a plan for going forward. Okay, so I want to, uh, Fred, let, let me start with you on this. I, I'm going to go back to a personal experience of mine. Many years ago, when I was a police reporter in Chicago, uh, I spent time uh, at the Cabrini Green Housing Project, which in its day was considered one of the most uh, troubled and dangerous housing projects in the United States. And the police who were assigned to Cabrini Green were known as the Vertical Patrol because instead of covering a broad geographic territory, they were literally up and down stairways in these 30-story buildings all over the site. Um, and Fred, without question, on the nights that I spent going out with members of the vertical patrol, virtually all, well, that's, a, that's an exaggeration. A majority of the calls they were going in on were domestic disputes. They were incredibly volatile situations where a man and a woman, partners were fighting ferociously with one another. They could have led to violence at any moment. And in fact, one instance that I was saw unfold, there was violence between the man and the woman. So I bring that up because it raises the question that we've sort of talked about in a general way. Is it really the job of police officers in a situation like that to deal with a domestic disturbance? Or is it, should that should the money that goes to cops to do that instead be diverted to social workers who or uh, other uh, 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 professionals who know how to deal with a situation like that um, more properly? Does that make sense, my question? Yeah, I do. I totally understand the question. Um, you know, I think 
I think there's lower hanging fruit than that, right? Um, because in that particular situation, as you describe it, it is volatile, it is violent. Um, the likelihood of arms being present um, and potentially used is maybe higher. Um, and so I actually, I would, I, I would start lower than that. I mean, I here in Atlanta, when I think about Rayshard Brooks, I mean, that's the kind of question I, I start with, right? Is that is our police? Who we are armed police who we want to go to deal with a man who's asleep at Wendy's. Um, because I, I just, I just to say, like, I, I mean, and I think what you're asking is a, a valid question and one that, but I, but I think that, that we like, we're nowhere near, in my view, um, that particular point. Um, that's my, that's my personal. Well, I know we're not, I, I, I understand that we're not at a moment where we're going to do this, but I'm talking about the, the general concept of what we're talking about when we talk about defunding police. Should resources be directed to other professionals who are trained to work on situations like uh, domestic uh, disturbances? But you raise a really important point, Fred, in terms of low-hanging fruit. Tiffany, um, uh, in some of the research I read— uh, the suggestions about police that there are some some data that shows that um, many police shootings, particularly of black people, uh, begin as we saw in the Rayshard Brooks incident as conversations between the officer and the eventual victim. There is an effort at conversation that escalates. Tiffany, right. That conversation, um, but often once we make it into criminal court, so let's say Rayshard Brooks had survived, that conversation would actually be uh, deemed an investigation or maybe even an interrogation. I think that the, the question is, how necessary is it, how necessary is any particular police contact? So when we were, when we were working on this issue with the Advisory Council, um, there is a series of recommendations around non-law enforcement response to crisis. And we know that it has to exist on a continuum. And we know that we did, in 45 days, there was no way that we could parse out the non-law enforcement response necessary sort of code categories and the ones that require police officers. But because we know that police violence is directly linked to the saturation that communities have with police, and Black people are more likely to experience police violence once there is a contact with a police officer, we have to be really critical of why we believe an armed law enforcement officer is the person to respond to particular incidents. And that includes a lot of different things. Um, in Atlanta, I really think about the ones where police are being asked to essentially be private security for businesses who find poor people or homeless people undesirable, who, who want to render them invisible. And so instead of um, being able to deal with um, them by using something like pre-arrest diversion, which is a wonderful program in the city of Atlanta that provides a housing first model where police come to a scene. If they determine that the, the, the cause for this particular behavior is poverty, um, addiction, or unmet mental health needs, they have the option to call pre-arrest diversion who sends out a care navigator. That care navigator shows up, the police officer leaves, this person receives housing and services immediately. And city council just voted to um, give pre-arrest diversion more money. That is a concrete example of a solution that is underutilized by the Atlanta Police Department, right? So that goes back to the cultural issue of how do we incentivize things like diversion? How do we discourage unnecessary arrest? How do we discourage unnecessary um, interrogations? Because 
I think one thing that the public misses by especially not being in conversation with public defenders is what happens when the person survives. What happens when a, when a victim of police violence instead has a mugshot and a, an obstruction of a law enforcement officer charged? What happens then? So we, we need to think about being continuum and not just death. Uh, I've got to get to our final break of the show. Before I do, Jim Galloway, real quick comment from you. Tiffany directed us to a website of the Vera, Vera Foundation, which did a study on the cost of policing in major cities around the United States. Uh, their most recent figures for the city of Atlanta uh, shows that the city's overall policing budget, most recently, $248,508,000, 30 percent of the city's funds devoted to policing, which amounts to like $412 uh, per resident of the city of Atlanta, an enormous expenditure. And other cities, of course, have similar figures, Jim. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a quarter of a billion dollars if you weren't listening. That's, that's, that's an extraordinary yeah. amount. Uh, but but if, uh, after the break, I'd like to, if, if we can, explore this idea of a, a <laughs> first responder who's a mental health specialist. And, and, to, Fred's I, point, and to Fred's point, I'd like to know if, if, if uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the prevalence of, of firearms uh, in this society is a barrier to, th- to that very thing. All right. I, I love it. Once again, setting us up for the last segment of our show. This is Political Rewind. So, uh, Rusty Paul, Fred Smith, Tiffany Williams, Roberts, Jim Galloway, we are only scratching the surface on this. We've got a very little amount of time left. Can I ask you all, could you commit that we will find another day to really explore this more deeply? This is an important subject, and I really want to drill down on it. So, please, let's all find a date to do this again. All right, Jim, very quickly, since we're so short on time, ask your question again. Okay, no, no. Uh, uh, Tiffany had brought up the, the the possibility of expansion of, of first responders who are mental health specialists, which I, I yeah. think is an intriguing idea. What do you think? But it, it uh, I'm wondering what, but what, what? Uh, I mean, to 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 Fred's point, uh, we have so many weapons, so many firearms in this society. I mean, can you ask? Can it's mental? Can you can you can you have both of those? Well, that's it, kind of like my Cabrini-Green question, I guess. It would be nice to have people who can deal with uh, a domestic disturbances, but not if violence is going to get involved. Tiffany? Uh, sure. I think one, one thing we have to discuss when we're talking about that is what leads to that violence. Domestic violence calls are the most dangerous calls for anyone to report to. Um, typically, you know, when there is a man causing violence, causing harm to a woman. And we also know there are countless domestic disputes that don't involve a firearm um, and don't involve uh, extreme violence that can be de-escalated. And so when we were talking about a continuum on the advisory council, we were trying to develop some some guidelines so that a a dispatcher could determine, is this person in in danger of immediate harm? um, Or is this an argument between parents over a child or parents over, you know, a a lover's quarrel? Are there weapons on the scene? And there are lots of places, or I'm not going to say lots, but there are cities that have successfully learned how to deploy um, crisis intervention teams, but first have to determine if firearms are a factor. Because, in fact, when a firearm is a factor, that's when police officers are more likely to be killed as well. So I think that it's possible, but it's not a bright line. 
Uh, Rusty Paul, I want to come to you on this real quickly because, again, you're where the rubber meets the road. You're the mayor of um, one of the biggest cities in uh, in the state of Georgia. If you could, uh, could you imagine a situation in which you were able to redirect some funding to make social workers and others more actively involved in what police too often are responding to first? Well, I'm one of the great stealers of ideas, and I'm going to steal Tiffany's idea, <clears throat> excuse me, about uh, <laughs> uh, maybe having some mental health uh, health professionals added to our force. I'm going to talk to the chief about it. One of the ironies is is during disturbances, the number of gun permits and, and sales go up exponentially. So when you have the kind of environment we have today, you're actually creating an environment where you're flooding the world with, with firearms, and that's uh, that's a real challenge in any law enforcement area because you just don't know. I've gone through the simulator that they train the police officers on, and you'd be shocked to see some of the weird situations that they're faced with a firearm, and, 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 and so it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. Uh, Fred, uh, Jim asked you about the presence of weapons. Tiffany gave an answer to it, but uh, clearly the more weapons we have out there, uh, the more difficult it is to deal with uh, trying to bring peace to a community, yes? Sure, yeah. Uh, and yeah, and to, to the mayor's point, uh, also when you, when you talk about gun control in a real way, that's also when sales go up. Um, so that's, a, yep. um, that's also a complication here. Um, yeah, I um, th- this is that that thinking about that is very difficult. But I would also say um, that the, a, an arrest is an inherently violent act, right? Like placing someone into handcuffs, taking them, you know, to a jail, et cetera. That is that is an inherently violent act, and therefore, um, if there if there are weapons present, right, there's kind of more opportunities for a clash. Um, if, if the people who are responding were individuals whose job was not, um, you know, to literally take away that person's liberty with a gun, right, um, if, then you might have fewer instances in which, um, even if there is a weapon somewhere present in the home and, and so forth, because um, you know, we do live in a country with a Second Amendment and a right to bear arms, and so we have to think about this in, in that particular context, um, where there would still be less uh, less likelihood that someone would actually get shot. The mere the mere fact that two people are coming into contact with each other, uh, you know, when I walk down the street, when I go to Trader Joe's, I don't think, oh, I live in a country with a lot of guns. Somebody might shoot me. That's not what comes to my mind, right? Um, but if I were to go outside and say, what I'm going to take it on myself to do today is put people in handcuffs and, and, and take them somewhere and put them somewhere, um, then the fact that there's a lot of guns uh, becomes much, much more relevant, right? And so um, if well, part of what I think we want to think about here, what are, the, what are the types of situations where we want to use state violence um, to put people um, into jails and to prisons? Um, and if we think about that right. question as well, then I think we'll be better off too. And Jim, as we run out of time, what we haven't even talked about today, and it's probably just as well we didn't, is how this entire question is being complicated right now by partisan politics and a president who seems to be uh, jumping in and encouraging the kinds of clashes that we're seeing in communities like uh, Portland and Kenosha, which makes it harder to have a pure conversation about the importance of some of the issues we've discussed today. Yes? Right. I, I think I think this is going to have to be done without that pure conversation, because it, regardless of what happens in November, it's going to keep going. 
All right, that's it. Rusty Paul, thank you so much. Fred Smith, Tiffany Williams Roberts, and Jim Galloway, thank you for a really smart conversation. I really do want to do this again because we've got a lot more we should talk about on uh, this important subject. Uh, we're back tomorrow with a show about COVID-19 in Georgia and nationally. We haven't looked at that for a while, uh, but we'll do it on tomorrow's show. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and please stay healthy. Bye, everybody.